Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Not just thinkers and writers, but cultural critics too. I've got one of my favorite cultural critics back today. It's uh, August the 23rd, 2022, and uh, William, uh, and I've always struggled with the pronunciation of his last name, Derezowitz. I think that's good. Wrong. Good work. Good work. Uh, I call him Bill. I'm not going to mention the D word anymore on this. He's been on the show a couple of times before. Um, he came on uh, last November to talk about David Graeber's Alternative Anthropologies. Um, Graeber's uh, co-authored book, The Dawn of Everything, was a, a big hit. And since we couldn't get Graeber, it wasn't for better or worse available. We had to get Bill. Uh, he's also been on the show uh, talking about uh, another of his books, The Death of the Working Artist, uh, which came out, I think it was in 2020. It's about how creators are struggling to survive in the age of billionaires and Big tech. It's a message we've heard many times before. Anyway, Bill's back with a new collection of essays, um, The End of Solitude. Um, he's been described by Franklin Furr, who's also been on the show, as one of the important cultural critics of our age. And uh, The End of Solitude is a collection of, of works, I think, of cultural criticism. Uh, Bill is joining us from Portland, where he lives. Bill, um, what are you saying in the end of solitude that um, you didn't say in the age of the artist, or in fact, in your best-selling book, uh, Excellent Sheep, which was also an intriguing book? Oh, a lot of things. And I just want to say, yes, the death of the artist. Uh, uh, people have talked about that issue before. I feel like I did some groundbreaking, you know, I, I did a lot of, you know, journalistic legwork, albeit uh, on my laptop for the death of the artist. I just want to stipulate that. The End of Solitude is uh, a collection of 42 essays uh, going back, some of them 29 years. They are on a wide variety of different topics. Uh, some of them overlap with some of the material from Excellent Sheep. I, I mean, overlap, I think I'm extending the argument. Um, I would say none of them overlap with the death of the artist. I talk about technology culture, meaning the experience of being on the social media platforms. I have a lot to say about higher education. I write about the arts. I write about literature. I write about my Jewishness. Um, so, uh, you know, it's a, it's a smorgasbord, I hope, for the reader. There are also a few new pieces in there. Well, it's a smorgasbord, and uh, if you were judging a book by its cover, it's a very cheerful cover, lots of reds and light blues and yellows, but it, it didn't seem to me, uh, Bill, to be a particularly cheerful book. It's rather dark, isn't it? Is there anything cheerful in the book? Is there anything that you're enthusiastic and excited about? Yeah, I, that cover, they had to explain it to me because I'm visually inept. I think it's supposed to be discombobulating. I think that's the idea. Mm. Um is there anything cheerful? You know, um, I'm not by nature an optimistic person or a cheerful person. I think that is where the arts and intellectual thought come in. Um, that's where, as the kids say these days, I find my bliss. I find it's not even hope because hope is about the future. It's 
you know, things are fucked up in a lot of ways about a lot of things, but um, the arts are a wonderful, I didn't even want to say oases because it makes it sound like they're cordoned off from life. I mean, to me, great art is exhilarating. It is life-giving. And great thought is the same way. And great writing is the same way. So um, that, that's, where the, that's where the light comes in in this book. I, I have to admit, I'm not, I, I certainly don't share your pessimism. I, uh, as you know, I do this show, Keen On. We do two or three sometimes four interviews a day, mostly with new authors. Uh, and people are doing amazing stuff. So I don't know where your pessimism comes from, Bill. What, what, what is, how would you summarize it? What's gone wrong with our culture? Again, I'm not saying that people aren't doing great work. Absolutely, they are. And I think this idea that, you know, it's all past us is, I don't say that in the book, I don't believe it. My pessimism, I don't know, I'm Jewish, among other things. I'm Jewish I, too, I'm not a pessimist. Interesting, Jewish and English and not a pessimist. Maybe because you live in California, if I'm not mistaken, you get all that sunlight. Mm. But um, what, what, you know, what am I saying is not going well in the book? Well, certainly higher education. I think it's very hard for students to get the kind of education that I think college should be for, which is an education and exploration. We can talk about that more. I think it's very hard for any professor who's left who still cares about uh, those, the kinds of values, you know, uh, the humanities as portals of discovery rather than as uh, ways to entrench yourself ideologically. Um, I do think, I know maybe a lot of people disagree. I mean, the internet has brought us lots of wonderful things, including this conversation. But I think social media and our addiction to our iPhones is really pernicious. It's really robbing us of the ability to have any kind of rich inner life. Uh, so that's but let's, let's, okay, so there's three things you brought up, all, all interesting. I've written about them myself from time to time. Um, let's use the example of the iPhone. Uh, I did an interview with Dwyer Murphy, has a wonderful new book out called An Honest Living. It's a novel um, uh, written around New York. And he said, you know, to write about New York, you just got to go out without an iPhone. You've got to walk a lot and look around. And that's what he did. I mean, we're yeah. quite capable of doing that. Sure, we're all on our iPhones all the time, but they're not uh, that addictive. I mean, <laughs> surely, um, I, I mean, for yeah. the artist, you, you talk about the end of solitude, no one's being creative anymore, blah, blah, blah. Didn't but you're always going to get the, the Dwyer Murphy's. Um, he's also the editor of Crime Read. So he makes a profession. He's employed. He's a former lawyer. So he, he got out of the legal profession. I'm not saying he's typical, but there are lots of guys like Dwyer Murphy who are adapting to the reality of our cultural economy, aren't they? Okay, so let's take it one at a time. And I, again, I didn't say that nothing creative is being done now. Dwyer Murphy, who I've never heard about, but his book makes the point for me that you, yes, you can experience the, the New York and the, the contemporary city, which I do myself, but only if you can put away your phone. And it's really, really hard for people to do that. I mean, my, my argument in those essays is that you should do it and you can do it and no one's stopping you from doing it. And yet most people aren't doing it. Um, uh, so, um, it's my phone, that that's phone? exactly right. <laughs> Forgot to turn it off. Um, that's probably Dwyer Murphy. Well, so 
that's the I, I, this is not a but hasn't that yeah. i mean no let me finish we've heard finish. all let these arguments finish. before but hasn't that always been the case let me finish before the internet there was television and before television there was radio and before radio there were newspapers there were always distractions nietzsche said you never can get any great work because everyone's addicted to newspapers why is this different now I agree with you that that people have been saying this about technologies, you know, and then going back to printing doesn't mean they were wrong. Uh, doesn't mean that things have been, been we've been losing things and we maybe have been losing things progressively. Um, these technologies keep getting more intrusive, right? So uh, radio and television for the first time came directly into our homes and people started to have their television on all the time. The internet comes in even more intimately because now it's in our pockets. And Andre Kudreski made this point a long time ago. Um, it's more pernicious because it's because it's interactive. People were saying, well, it's better because it's interactive. No, it's worse because it's interactive, because it sucks you in. And it's this whole process of looking for the serotonin hit of a like, of a reaction, building your brand, building your persona. So I don't buy this argument that, well, people have always been complaining. You know, people have always been complaining about social inequality. It uh, doesn't mean that they were wrong to complain or that we're wrong to complain now. Let's go on to, you, you mentioned that you write about the crisis of education. You, you wrote about that in your excellent book, Excellent Sheep, uh, the miseducation of the American elite. You've been very vocal, and I think in some ways persuasive on this subject. What are you saying new in the end of Solifude that you didn't say in the end of Sheep about the crisis of further education in America, particularly the Ivy League education, which you're very familiar with. You used to teach at Yale, and you're very well connected in that world. Right. So I would say, and I'm glad I got a, I got a win on the board with you, that there's actually one book that says something uh, new. Um, I go, I, this is my, the essays in that section on higher education are my, my next thoughts about this issue. And, and the truth is they're not really about elite education in particular as Excellent Sheep was. So about a year after Excellent Sheep came out, I wrote a, a piece called The Neoliberal Arts that um, where, where I've realized in the response to Excellent Sheep that actually I was talking about phenomena that by and large were much broader than American elite education. They're true in non-elite higher education. They're true in non-higher education, K through 12. They're true in other countries. And the, the common theme is what is what I'm you know, loosely calling neoliberalism, which means a system that only recognizes market values as valid. What has it done to education? And the answer is it has gotten us to think exclusively in terms of producing people for the job market and everything else in education has gotten stripped out. Also in that section and in some other sections as well, I, I talk about a phenomenon that really wasn't, I wasn't aware of and really didn't exist when I wrote Excellent Sheep, which is what we now call wokeness. We called it political correctness, but it had been quiescent for a while. And then people dated to around 2013, 2014, right when Excellent Sheep came out, it suddenly bursts forth and um, I came, I went back to a college to teach in 2015 and it really hit me in the face. So this is like the next thing that I think is really problematic in higher education. And it dovetails, this is part of what I say that I think other people hadn't been saying about this. It dovetails with what I talk about in Excellent Sheep, right? They're not separate things. They actually work together very well. 
for a number of reasons that we can talk about if you're interested. So one of the essays included in the book, which is a particularly intriguing one, Why I Left Academia, Since You're Wondering, is there a, a political component, do you think, to your writing? Do you see yourself as uh, a leftist, a conservative, a liberal? How, how do you define yourself politically, and particularly in terms of this love-hate relationship with the university? Um, I define myself as a progressive in the Bernie Sanders sense and very much not in the culture war sense, but I don't really think that enters into this book very much. Um, I'm not making arguments on behalf of social democracy. I think a lot of other people can do that better. And I think that maybe that means that my political position or my understanding of the relationship between politics and the things that I talk about is that there are other things in the world in politics. And part of the problem with where our, where progressivism is now is that it's a kind of totalizing conception of politics. Everything must sub submit to the ideology. The arts must submit. They must be political. They must be correct. And they must be political. Like you're not even not, not allowed to talk about these things in addition to the fact that you have to talk about them in the right way. And the same thing with higher education. I mean, one of the things, one of the synergies, I think, between where the university had been and what wokeness is doing to it now is that the university had basically become devoid of values other than market values. The university was looking for a logic that was larger than and more noble than producing people for the job market. And wokeness was the perfect, well, I don't know, perfect, but it, it, it was an opportunistic infection on that situation. All of a sudden, there's something, some higher, some moral purpose that we can reinstill into the academy. And we now have what I refer to as the social justice college. The college where every commencement speaker says, go out with your degree and work for social justice. And social justice is not the same as justice. It's a very, very particular and rigid and prescriptive form of justice. Your, your essay is quite personal. Uh, you, you write, uh, here's why I left. This is the essay on, on why you left academia, which is in the book. Here's why I left. I didn't have a choice. I not only failed to get tenure at Yale, which was completely expected, I failed to land another job anywhere else. Um, you suggest or you seem to suggest that you're a victim of all this. Is that fair? <laughs> no. Putting words in my mouth. I, well, I mean, I, when, you, I when make, you write that, that you couldn't, you, it wasn't it, 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 that I failed well, with not lack of trying. You list all the different universities that you applied to. But um, let me, yes. But let, I mean, what do I go on to say in that essay? Uh, I, I made a series of choices as an academic that were not wise for my career. And I knew that. If, if you want to get your next job, get tenure somewhere, anywhere, you have to focus single-mindedly on your research. Everybody understands this. Any second not focused on your research is career suicide. But I cared about teaching. It was the reason I got into it. I wanted to be a teacher. I wanted to be a mentor. And I cared about and I loved writing for a general audience, writing the kinds of pieces that appear in this book. Um, so I don't see myself as a victim for that reason. I knew what I was doing. I thought I could get away with it. I didn't get away with it. I do say, I you know I played by the rules that I wish we had, but I didn't want to play by my own rules. I wanted everyone to have the rules that I played by. I wanted I want academia to be a place, especially in the humanities, where teaching is more valued and rewarded, and where non-academic writing is more valued and rewarded.
And what's the, the politics? I, the reason I keep on asking, I, I saw a piece by the conservative Rod Dreher, who, I, who came on my show. I thought he was actually appalling. Um, sort of like a <laughs> Catholic right. fundamentalist of some right. bizarre kind. Um, but he wrote about you. And, and again, just because he writes nice things about you I, doesn't necessarily make it a critique of, of you. But he, he wrote that uh, he, he read your stunning essay about why you left academia. It is as clear a manifest, and I'm quoting Dreher here, yeah. it is as clear a manifestation of a civilization self-murder as you can hope for. The problem, I'm not saying you necessarily have done this on purpose, but your argument has been appropriated, hijacked by hardcore reactionaries like Dreher about the decline of the West. And it's not hard to, to borrow what you're saying and saying, oh, it's the crisis of the West, the crisis of civilization, the crisis of literature, blah, blah, blah. How would you respond to that? Two ways. First of all, I, I, I am careful to avoid that kind of extreme rhetoric. I, even the end of solitude or the death of the artist, what can I say? These were titles chosen by publishers and editors. And at a certain point, you just have to submit and say, if they think it's gonna help make more people buy the book, what am I gonna do? Um, in terms of my work being appropriated by conservatives, and I wasn't even aware of Dreher uh, doing that, um, this is very important. One of the ways that self-critique on the left is stifled is precisely by saying you're giving hostages to the enemy. And if, and if people like Dreher quote you, or if you s use language that Tucker Carlson is also using like wokeness, people will say you're, you're helping the conservatives or you are a conservative. And if you're a conservative now, that means you're a racist. But we need to be able to make these critiques nonetheless. And the fact is it doesn't get very much play in the media. There is now a robust body of critique and a robust core of, of critics on the left, or let's say at least the left half of the political spectrum, center left, progressive left, heterodox thinkers, for lack of a better word, people who are willing to think for themselves, who don't fall easily into a category, who are making this critique against the illiberalism of the progressive left. And it needs to be made if if this is ever going to change, which I think it desperately needs to do because I think it's weakening the left and for the Democratic Party, it's electoral poison. So if we want to defeat the conservatives and the right and the Republicans, which I think we need to do because I think they're monstrous, we need to be as strong as possible, which means we have to be able to critique ourselves and think instead of just follow orders. And is that sort of way out, that way forward or way out of wokeness, who do you think um, is, is leading it? What writers, what thinkers, apart from oh yourself, who are you reading oh, or listening to or watching who you think are really beginning to make sense of this from the left? Oh, yeah. First and foremost, Wesley Yang, who's incredibly insightful and writes about this all the time. Um, there are other podcasts I listen to, Megan Dam's podcast, which is wonderfully reflective and nuanced, and she has guests, a variety of guests. Uh, Andrew Sullivan, who's a, who's a conservative I often disagree with, but a, but a small L liberal, very much so, and is helping to make this case and inviting guests on. But, Sol Gary but Sullivan doesn't Gary argue Weiss. from the left. I mean, so okay, Sullivan I said that. I said that he's a conservative, but he also, so let's fine, let's leave out Andrew Sullivan. 
Um, Leon Wieseltier's journal, which I write for, Liberties. Leon is a liberal, and this and Liberties, as the name, it's not libertarian, it's liberal. That's my latest piece for them. It's about great books courses and why we still yeah. should have them. And I mean, I you know, give me more time and I can add more names because it's actually quite a lot of people. Do you think in retrospect, and again, I don't want to personalize this, uh, Leon's history is a little checkered. Do you think that over the last 25 years, um, I don't know what you would call them, but your camp has made some errors, perhaps in not just in lifestyle, but in, in terms of coasting, of taking for granted their worldview? Well, let me just just briefly defend Leon. I mean, he was a victim of Me Too. Um, he apologized sincerely. Okay, he really meant it. And he was on the show, so I talked to him okay. directly on okay. this. Okay, so I think it's bullshit that he's still, you know, in, he's still uh, he who shall one of those who shall not be named. But to your point, um, I, I, I haven't I haven't thought about that, but I actually think it's a good point. I think we didn't see this coming. I think a lot of us knew that this nonsense was going on. The academy never managed it would break out of the academy, and uh, we stopped making the case. Um, but I think to, I don't even want to say our, because it's presumptuous, but I think to the credit of these people I'm describing, they have rallied to the cause with a great deal of courage, something that we have scarcely seen on the right, where mainly it's been capitulation. You mean people are willing to sacrifice their careers when yeah, they say brave? I mean, what, what's yes, brave about yes. writing a piece in Unheard or somewhere else? Well, for what, listen, again, I'm not attributing courage to myself. I had already lost my job. But to be honest, uh, I can't write for some of the more high profile, or I, I have not been asked to write for some of the more high yeah. profile places. I used to make a pretty good living speaking to colleges and universities. That died down, I think, mainly because of the pandemic. But I do, you know, it's a good bet that there are speaking gigs that I'm not going to get because of the things that I've been saying. But other people have been, you know, Barry Weiss. Um, but Barry Weiss is a conservative. Again, she's I'm not a con she's not a conservative. She's really not. She's center left. This is the problem, Andrew. Is that she's seen as conservative? Well, what makes her center left? Well, what does she say that is in any way center left? She's intimate with Sullivan and that whole crowd. I, I don't see what's center left about her. She's obsessed with anti-Semitism, which you know, obviously is, that is not something that one can ignore, but it's not exactly central in the world. But it doesn't make her a conservative. It doesn't make, what's center left about her? Well, she's, she's, a, she's outspoken about a reproductive choice. That makes her center left because she's in favor of abortion. I'm not convinced. Yeah. Um, let, let's, um, yeah, go ahead. Let, let's, uh, Bill, let's, talk more about this idea of the end of solitude it seems to me as if two things are happening simultaneously which is very weird I, I think you're right about this idea of the crisis of solitude people don't want to be on their own they come to social media they go to twitter they want to be part of communities and yet we also live in an age of an epidemic of loneliness how are these two things connected or attached that they seem to be um entirely contradictory, and yet they define our culture, particularly in a generational sense. They're not contradictory at all. This is exactly the distinction I make in the title essay, The End of Solitude. Let's, let's talk about three words. 
uh, loneliness, solitude, and aloneness. Aloneness is an objective state of being by yourself. We could look at someone and see, are they alone? Uh, solitude and loneliness are antithetical experiences of that state. Loneliness is grief and emptiness and sadness over the fact that you're not connected to people. Solitude is an ability to be, uh, is an ability to be still and full and happy in that condition and it, you know, with your own thoughts, with your own feelings. So we have people who are very alone and therefore lonely, but aren't capable of solitude, aren't capable of sitting with that and recognizing the advantages of it. Now, we still need connections. We still need contact with people. I'm not saying be alone all the time. I'm saying if you can break your, or at least reduce your addiction to that shallow social affirmation that we get on social media that we're looking for when we go on social media, you can discover that being alone isn't so bad. In fact, in some ways, it's really good some of the time. You wrote a piece about what the pandemic has done to the arts. Um, is, I mean, COVID is obviously, when you were talking about the pandemic, what you were describing, but is there a deeper pandemic then, this pandemic of, of, low, of loneliness, of isolation, of grief, of some sort of grief of being separate from others and yet being also obsessed with being intimately connected and the more intimately connected one wants to be, the, the less one actually is? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I think people would say, mental health professionals would say it's a pandemic or an epidemic of depression, of anxiety, of all of the you know, clinically definable conditions that go along with that. And I'm trying to offer some, some alternatives in the book. Like, I mean, it's not a self-help book, but one way or another, the pieces are trying to remind readers that, uh, that there's something on the other side of that. If, if you can just, you know, control yourself a little bit with your addiction and read a book again. You so know? is the answer, uh, Bill, Jane Austen, six novels? <laughs> you, you wrote a Jane Austen education. It's one of your expertise. Is it people picked up Jane Austen or Dickens or Balzac or Shakespeare? Is that the fix, really, when it comes down to it? Uh, different for everybody. I do not. People ask me for reading recommendations, as you're about to, and I always say, I can't really give you. I can well, tell no, you what I like. I'm not saying a particular book, but a book no, of some look, sort. Listen, some people are not readers, even if they didn't have smartphones. And I totally, uh, you know, that's fine. Pe different people are different. For, for some people, it might mean going into their work, you know, their garage and like building a piece of furniture or gardening or taking a walk in the woods or being with friends without being on your phone all the time or any number i mean kind of a limitless universe that we used to live in where you know we were present to ourselves so it's not read a book it's maybe read a book but there are lots of other things you can do too it's funny uh, the 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 title at the end of solitude is a um is a book about other people's solitude but in a, in a funny kind of way it's also a book about your own solitude or this idea that we're all out of touch. So you write on, on the Bobos about Democrats being out of touch, not just with Republican voters, but their own voters. And this comes back to sort of politics and um, trying to find a third way between wokes and conservatives. How 
do you earn that solitude, Phil, of the of the liberal, of the liberal progressive, whatever group that you consider yourself part of? Is it rediscovering, rethinking language? What, what, what is the key to this? How do you get to the, the voters who we're supposedly out of touch with? So first of all, I like the segue, but solitude and being out of touch are completely different things. And you can be in touch and also have solitude in your life. But thank you for directing the conversation here. It's a huge problem. And to me, it grows out of some of the stuff I write in Excellent Sheep, that the liberal elite, the college educated elite have lived their entire lives in a sociological and a demographic bubble. And it's not about language. That's the woke answer. Everything just changed the language. We have to we, we have to break down that bubble. We have to, ha we have, to have colleges that are less segregated uh, intellectually and demographically as they are. Uh, but, but that's gonna take a long time if it ever happens. My recommendation to the Democratic Party, and I think I say it in that essay you just cited, is uh, you need to have more people who come from the rest of the country beyond that coastal Ivy League plus elite more people, uh, I quote Mike Huckabee, who used to say to evangelical audiences when he was still a politician, I'm not coming to you, I'm coming from you. I am one of you. Well, the Democratic Party still at least thinks that it's the party of the working class, but it has nobody who in leadership positions who comes from the working class, including AOC, I should say. Nobody who even comes from communities of color that aren't also really in some way part of the bubble. Because Biden's the from the class. working class. I mean, the old Yes, Biden is stuff. from the working class. He's also 82. He seems to be one of the last <laughs> of his breed. It's interesting that he's the one who, he was not going to, you know, people left him for dead. And all of a sudden we find out that that's what most Democratic primary voters want. But we don't seem to have internalized that message in the Democratic Party. Well, finally, Bell, you've got this this new book, The, uh, the End of... Solitude, your first sentence in this essay, um, you wrote originally in 2009, is what does the contemporary self want? So perhaps you might end with uh, some ideas on what, what you call the contemporary self wants. Well, what I say in the essay is that we want to be known. We want to be sort of mini celebrities because that's the only thing that validates us. But we shouldn't want that, right? Well, I like, I try to talk about the contemporary self in contrast to what I call the modern self, which is the self of the last couple of centuries, which insists on its, insisted on its independence, on its separateness, on its uniqueness, on its ability to think against the group and outside the group. And reading was essential to that and art was essential to that. And that's the self that, I, that I've always valued and tried to be. And that's the self that I hope we don't have to lose completely. If we remember those not virtues or values, but practices. It's a matter of enactment. It's a matter of practices. And what happens if we, and I, as I made clear in this, I don't actually agree with you, but what happens if <laughs> you're right and we do lose this self? What, 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 what becomes of us and what becomes of society? I think we're seeing it. I think we're seeing, uh, it's not just polarization because that implies that there are only two sides. It's this intense group identification whether that means your official demographic group, you know, I'm an LGBTQ plus, or just the group of people on social media that you always need to stay aligned with. So I think we're losing. I mean, it's, we're not losing it completely, obviously, but I think we see 
a, a great diminishment of people's ability to think outside the group, but even more, and this gets back to some stuff we were talking about before, their willingness to go against the group because they're afraid of social ostracism. I think that's a, a real thing. I think it's a really bad thing, whatever you might think about it. Well, you know, I take your point. I think that there, there may be some truth. For me, this dark future would be when you be everyone would be forced to listen to NPR. Can you imagine that? <laughs> I mean, you you wrote this brilliant piece on NPR about how you rebelled against it. Every time I get interviewed on NPR, it's always by women, and they all sound the same. I always ask them, "How do? You, how come you sound the same? Do you get manufactured in the same universe, uh, same factory?" They're sort of half amused, but I don't know what it is about NPR that sort of captures all the most annoying things about the progressive world. Should we just switch it off, Bill? Well, you know, that's what I ended up doing. And I should say, like many liberals, good liberals, I loved NPR for decades. It was part of what I what defined me. And I and I think if you listen back 10 or 20 years, like it was a different network. You could talk about things. Not everybody sounded the same. Uh, they have gone in the direction that all of that sort of legacy mainstream liberal media has, which is we are now targeting ourselves to a very specific uh, ideological band. And of course, and that's why they are boring and homogenous. Well, we're giving Terry Gross a good run for our money in this conversation, Bill. Well, right. Thank you so much. What else are you? I know you don't want to give too many uh <laughs> book book recommendations because you're the book man but anything that you're reading that you think is particularly valuable for those of us who are lonely isolated miserable like you uh i mentioned this to you in an email there's a guy named dave hickey who is who is one of the great prose writers and cultural critics of the last few decades he died i think a year ago some people may know his book air guitar He's also got yeah, three yeah, other yeah, collections. Yeah. I, mean, well, I can't get him now because he's dead. Uh, you didn't ask me for a guest recommendation, but you can get Daniel Oppenheimer, who wrote a great book on Hickey called Far From Respectable. I just finished it. He's a wonderful writer in his own right. I bet he would be great. Daniel Oppenheimer, Far From Respectable.